The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can follow live tweeting of the show by Emma Schoenfellner at hashtag BigBeaconRadio, and today it's a, both a personal and professional pleasure to welcome a former colleague and a friend, uh, Michael Louie, to the show. Welcome to the show, Michael. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Well, it's and it's great to great to have you, and and you were always my go-to guy when it came to <laughs> asking questions about what what do we know from the research of engineering education and scholarship and learning. But you're you're more than that, and we and before we dive into uh, talking about engineering education, I wanted to, we want our listeners to get a chance to know you a little bit better. So, so Michael, you're a faculty member. You're I've been a scholar of computational complexity, mm-hmm. scholar of learning and teaching, engineering education, engineering ethics. You've mm-hmm. been an NSF program director, an associate dean, and now you're the Dale and Susie Gallagher Professor of Engineering Education at uh, uh, Purdue. But um, let's uh, go back in the log cabin and and uh, yeah, what were some of the early in, early influences in your life that led to the path that you're that you're on? Yes. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, but I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, my parents valued education and took me to the library, and we always had books around the house, so we always um, were uh, had a place of high value in education and learning a variety of things. Um, I would say I had great teachers in uh, grade school and high school and then uh, went off to college. Um, I, at the time, I didn't realize how important a liberal arts education would be in my future, even though I uh, studied computer science and got a doctorate in computer science. Yeah. I would say uh, that um, having great teachers was helpful for me. And, and then uh, some, I guess, what you call them, uh, Early influences or turning points would be uh, the fellowship that I had at, as a grad student that enabled me to choose my own path in terms of doing research. Then uh, from there, I went straight to being a professor. Um, uh, after two summer internships in the real world uh, writing uh, computer programs, I decided that I never wanted to see the real world again, so I've been an academic <laughs> all my life. Um, it helps to have tenure, and being a full professor at a university sure. gives me the freedom to pursue whatever interests I had. I would say that um, 
having multiple interests, doing reading outside my special, my technical specialty of computational complexity theory, led to interest in, say, engineering ethics. I created an engineering ethics course, and as a good yep. scholar, started publishing on that. Yep. Then, having done a lot of reading on college teaching because I wanted to be effective as a teacher at the University of Illinois, um, I then had the opportunity to teach a graduate course in college teaching and apply what I, I learned there and, and share that with the students, then um, started doing research on that as well. And that led to uh, doing uh, more engineering education research and then ultimately being the editor of the Journal of Engineering Education. I would say that as opportunities came up, so the NSF program directorship, the deanship, the editorship, I was able to um, seize those opportunities. Um, not everything I've tried has been successful. I applied for some positions for which I was not chosen, but I uh, would say um, that being well-prepared, being there in the right place at the right time was, was helpful in my career. Yeah, and, uh, and that little school you went to in Hawaii, that's the same school that uh, the President Obama went to, isn't it? Yes, uh, President Obama uh, graduated in 1979. I graduated in 1972, so we didn't overlap in high school or grade school at all, um, and I, I didn't know him. Then um, people say that uh, um, uh, and when I give formal speeches, I, I speak like the president, but actually he speaks like me. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and so and it's interesting because uh, the uh, people, you know, that, that school is a feeder to, you know, the Harvards and the, and the Yales and the, so forth. And I was talking mm -hmm. to a master at a school down the road, uh, Iolani School, that's doing mm -hmm. some really exciting, exciting things as, as well and trying to kind of get beyond the, the rat race of uh, the, the the strictly college prep sort of thing, and hopefully we'll we'll get them on the show at some some point. But yeah, you know, we're also yeah. interested in the show in in uh, unleashing experiences along the line of what mm -hmm. Mark and I uh, talked about in a whole new engineer. And so, you know, what uh, what ex and maybe we've already heard some of those, but uh, mm -hmm. what experiences or personal personal influences? Who who or what uh, happened in your life that sort of allowed you to go your own way? Well, I would say uh, the. Um opportunities that, that came up that uh, were, for example, we had uh, a program on campus uh, called uh, Program for Cultural Values and Ethics, and I got to meet other people who were interested in professional ethics, having a community of people who were interested in doing that, uh, and in my case at the time, it wasn't my primary scholarly interest, helped a great deal. Um, and then later on, finding other people uh, on campus who uh, valued uh, college teaching and quality teaching, having conversations with them and, and getting to know them. I think um, I can't say there was any dramatic experiences sure. or great epiphanies, but um, having uh, a wide network of professional colleagues who are uh, share interests or even have other interests that, that um, I, I might develop interest in was, uh, I think, quite formative um, and I, I would recommend that to everybody who's having, yeah. having as large a professional network as possible. Yeah, it's so, inter it's so interesting the different answers that people, I try to ask that question mm -hmm. of almost everyone who comes mm -hmm. on the show, and it's uh, so interesting the different answers that people have. You know, some people say, well, I'm programming a computer. I Thinking about that question myself, I, you know, doing ham radio was big for mm -hmm. My unleashing, mm -hmm. and it's so interesting how the different ways that people find their way to the courage to do to do cool mm -hmm. stuff. So, and I would and also, I, and I'm not if I could, go, yeah, go if ahead. I could add one thing yeah. uh, that there were also the naysayers, uh, and it, 
there were people who discouraged me from doing work in engineering ethics or uh, more generally the non-technical aspects of engineering. There were people who discouraged me from publishing in engineering education. And, uh, you know, it, it is sometimes hard to decide uh, whom to listen to. Uh, uh, some people have very good judgment and those are people we should listen to. And then some people have very bad judgment and these are people who are uh, we shouldn't be listening to, but sometimes it, it's hard to tell uh, which ones uh, we should be paying attention to. Well, um, that's so interesting. It's, sometimes it's and it's, sometimes it's the naysayers that give us the energy to say, "No, you're. I think you're wrong," and and to step into mm-hmm. it is what I'm hearing. Yes, okay? I think yeah. so. Yeah, and that's I, I hadn't thought of. You know, I usually think of uh, in the book we talk about the unleashing as a positive force by positive people, but I, I think that uh, that's uh, you're actually the second guest in a row that's uh, that's brought up this idea of uh, maybe it's honorary un- unleashing where where people who said no you can't do that uh, mm-hmm. it formed a challenge that we overcame that's so interesting mm-hmm. you know yeah, so michael and, so- and we're not going to spend the whole show talking about ifoundry sure. but but you and i were colleagues uh during the formative year we spent a lot of time on the show on olin and ifoundry mm-hmm. and some of the the mm-hmm. transformative efforts that are going on around the world. And and so you, as I said, you were the go-to guy. You were, um, you and I, um, actually the precursor to iFoundry was Engineering and Technology Studies and the Engineer mm-hmm. of the Future event that you and I uh, um, co-produced. And, and, and so many good things came from that. I guess, you know, that's, you know, that's in the rear view mirror now a good bit. You know, looking back, uh, that was 2006, mm-hmm. 2007 that we started our conversation mm-hmm. about philosophy and ethics mm-hmm. and engineering and, and what was, you know, what, what this all meant. And, and uh, what, when you look back in that rear view mirror, what do you see? What, what are some of the takeaways, but positive and negative? I think some of the positives were uh, being able to meet colleagues from other parts of the campus who uh, uh, had really interesting things to say that were related to engineering and, again, expanding the professional network, um, having a, a blessing to create this um, skunkworks or uh, uh, incubator place uh, called iFoundry uh, was, a, was a great opportunity that, that we seized as well. Uh, and we worked very hard to... Uh, um, as you know, all those meetings to put together the new uh, Illinois Freshman Engineering Experience yep. Yep. Um, and uh, some of the other programs that uh, we we put together. I, I would say that um, some of the lessons that I, I learned now looking back uh, yep. up to 10 years now is uh, how, how change is really hard in a culture as... Uh, well, in an institution that is as yeah. uh, long-lasting as the University of Illinois, or really any of our uh, ongoing organizations that are old, there are um, strong cultural effects and strong in, um, influences that are that are sometimes hard to overcome. Yeah. And uh, you know, as they say, uh, what is there There's some saying that culture eats innovation for lunch or something? So Drucker, that, uh, yeah, Drucker, yeah, Peter Drucker said that. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, the values, the practices, the customs um, are are very hard to change in, in old institutions. That's not to say that they're impossible to change. I I think uh, reflect back on just social changes in society. Sometimes these changes do take a long time, uh, but we need uh, you know the small group of dedicated people who have. Uh, 
facts on their side, who have the power of persuasion, who can bring in uh, new people and, and build uh, coalitions uh, with, with some help from helpful administrators. Um, so I, I also think it needs to be opportunistic. I mean, I, the, sometimes the time has to be right. Um, I've had some ideas in my career that uh, the, it was the right idea at the wrong time. So uh, it's it's always being being I guess prepared and ready, having yeah. the the background and and knowing um, how to build the the uh, communities that that will eventually be sustaining. Um, here at Illinois, there's some residue from our efforts in the, the we now have these communities of practices within yep. individual departments to uh, implement uh, better teaching practices. And, and I think that that's uh, one legacy, I think, is the that I think iFoundry was the catalyst to bring some people together. Yep. And it's continued in a very different form, but that's okay. So yeah, no, and I, I, you know, and I, I, I look back and I, I see some of this. I say many of the same things. Both the, 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 the change is hard, and it, it is largely cultural and institutional, and you ignore those things at your peril. I think if there's, you know, mm-hmm. if you were to summarize a whole new engineer in in about a sentence, you'd say, well, change is emotional and cultural. Damn it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and we tend to think of it as all being content curriculum and pedagogy, and that's the rational yeah. part. You need that, but, mm-hmm. but it's the hard part is the other part that we hardly ever talk about. I think the other, the other part is I look back on you know, what didn't work. I, I think back to the ways in which some of the good stuff was not institutionalized and was mm-hmm. undone, undone fairly quickly. But mm-hmm. as you say, the, then the legacy the cultural legacy, I think, is there, and I and having mm-hmm. I don't go back a lot, but when I go back, I see um, that people now have permission to work on undergraduate stuff at, at an institution right. that was formerly taboo. So that's you know that's a good mm-hmm. thing. Okay, so Absolutely. let's okay, yeah, let's put iFoundry in the drawer, and and uh, mm-hmm. so you know you moved east on I seventy four and uh, took and mm-hmm. uh, taken a. Um, almost full time position at Purdue School of Engineering Education. Um, now tell us about uh, that new position and uh, and what kind of what interesting things did you notice uh, in the shift from uh, electrical engineering at Illinois to engineering mm-hmm. education at Purdue? Yes. So uh, first, at an institutional level, uh, as many listeners know, Purdue and Illinois are both large public universities, uh, Big Ten schools. Uh, they actually have even more similarities. They have red brick buildings, engineering, and is on the north side in both cases, agriculture on the south side. Yeah. Uh, and um, they're similar-sized institutions, both with pretty good uh, basketball teams, men's basketball and women's basketball, pretty um, struggling football teams. So it, there are lots and lots of similarities. So it was very comfortable. Um, as departments, engineering education at Purdue is a much smaller department of about 24 uh, faculty members versus electrical engineering at Illinois, which has 100 faculty members. And it's a much younger department, so they were in need of um, uh, some senior faculty like me to help with the mentoring of the younger faculty and the, the doctoral students there. The department is also extremely diverse. Uh, uh, by engineering standards, half the faculty and 70% of the grad students are women. We have people of color, many people of color, both the faculty and grad students and staff as well. Uh, and uh, 
people who are younger as well as older, people who've had careers. So uh, it's a place that believes in diversity, that, that particular school, and that does influence the culture of engineering at Purdue, which uh, is proud to have a much larger uh, percentage of women in uh, among the undergraduates than most other places, and a uh, commitment to uh, public service, uh, I would say uh, community service through engineering. There's a famous EPICS program called Engineering Projects in Community Service. So yes. there are some cultural aspects. Um, I would say the the culture at Purdue and at the faculty level is much more um, inclusive in its decision-making. Uh, it's not to say one is wrong or right. It's just uh, that's one of those differences in the culture of the institutions and how they evolved. But um, I, I keep getting consulted on everything. Uh, it's uh, very different from my experience at Illinois. Um, so, yes, uh, there are many similarities and, and many uh differences being in a different kind of department as well. Yeah, and we had, uh, not long ago, we had Barry Johnson on the program mm-hmm. from Polarity Management and uh, or Polarity uh, Associates and, and talking about these polarities that need, that are not right or wrong. They're not solutions mm-hmm. to problems, but they're things that have to be managed and different cultures manage them mm-hmm. differently. Next week, we're going to have, actually, we're going to have Monica Cox on the show, who was at uh, Engineering mm-hmm. Education uh, Purdue, and, and um, she's founding chair of uh, Ohio State's Engineering Education Department. Michigan's creating an Engineering Education Department. SMU mm-hmm. has a new center. What's, what's, what's your take on all these departments and, and centers of engineering education that are popping up? What's, what's that? Yeah, I think it's a growing about? movement here. Uh, uh, you mentioned those places, Virginia Tech uh, and Purdue were the first two engineering education departments, and uh, Clemson and Utah State yep. have departments of science and engineering education. You mentioned Ohio State and, and also University of Cincinnati is uh, creating a new engineering education department. There have been research centers for engineering education at uh, many schools as well, like uh, Northwestern, Michigan State, University of Washington. Um, And uh, my take is that there's been a lot of concern over the uh, education of engineers, and um, there's a lot more research now and efforts uh, that, that have uh, come up before there were departments. I think partly it's also, so there's partly this concern, and, and the American Society for Engineering Education has been around for over 100 years, so that's, there's a historical interest as well. Um, oh, I think another influence has been the uh, availability of funding from the National Science Foundation and other places uh, to uh, fund research as well as uh, education projects aimed at improving education for engineers. Uh, and I would say this is part of a broader movement on called discipline-based education research. Uh, in physics, uh, there's a, a group, um, well, a specialty called physics education research that very much like engineering education research takes ideas from uh, educational theory, social uh, sciences, and applies them to the teaching and learning of physics. And similarly in chemistry. So th- that's well-developed as well. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a trend uh recognizing that people who uh, study education at the, in these disciplines like engineering, physics, and chemistry need to be very well-versed and even experts in those disciplines in order to understand the knowledge and, and the culture of those disciplines uh, to be able to do research on that. So, uh, we're, so there are different models. There are departments, there are research centers. There are even places like Nebraska or Oregon State or Arizona State where there are faculty members in 
engineering departments, standard engineering departments, that whose research interests are in engineering education. So I think that that will also be another model uh, as we go into the future. Yeah, well, this uh, this is, and I appreciate this uh, summary. And I think we want to want to pick up with this and take a take a step back and look at the more global picture of what's going on in in educate engineering education research as well as the scholarship of teaching and 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 learning um, more generally. But we're at first we'll take a little break and we'll we'll come back and and do this do that this is big beacon radio with our special guest michael louie in the next seg- segment we want to take a look at what's going on in uh, the scholarship of teaching and learning as well as engineering education more specifically Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And um, uh, get the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. Um, Buy a, buy a case, buy two cases, uh, write to me at deg at bigbeacon.org. Uh, one of the ways to soften up uh, uh, a stodgy faculty is get them, getting them to read this book. So anyway, so we have, before the break, we were talking with our uh, uh, guest, Michael Louie, formerly of the University of Illinois, or I guess still currently partially at the University of Illinois, but mainly at uh, uh, Purdue University. We were talking about engineering education. Michael's the 
editor-in-chief, among other things, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Engineering Education. And, Michael, we want to tap into um, that um, that unique perspective that you have as uh, you know, as editor of, of arguably the top journal in engineering education. Um, you know, you know what's you get a chance to see what people are thinking mm-hmm. about, what they're doing uh, research-wise, uh, and what's going on in engineering education around the the globe. You also sit on other editorial bo- boards of other journals in the scholarship of teaching and learning. So, you know, what what do you see as as some of the key trends? Uh, what are what are people thinking about, writing about, in uh, engineering education today? Okay, uh, so. Uh, Current trends in engineering education research are, are sort of drawn uh, in part by what's going on in engineering education itself as, as uh, people are coming up with new programs and new ideas. One of the uh, burgeoning areas is uh, pre-college engineering education, that is K through 12, grades kindergarten through 12th grade, uh, with the adoption of the next generation science standards across the United States. Uh, there's been a push for engineering instruction to be integrated with science and math instruction. Uh, so sometimes it's called integrated STEM. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So uh, teaching engineering design along with uh, how that connects with science and math. Uh, that's a very new area, and it's just um, growing a, a, a lot, and uh, I'm seeing more and more papers in that area. Uh, we uh, continue to see uh, uh, papers on uh, Student development, identity development. Um, one of there has been a recent paper on um, busting the myth of uh, Asian Americans as a model minority, and so how they, how their identities, uh, how they negotiate those identities as uh, Asian Americans, as and as an engineering students, and it's not monolithic. There's been. Um, uh, Continued large-scale studies on completion rates of engineering uh, programs by uh, uh, by race, gender, and so on, and the insights of, of how um, the completion rates are not necessarily different between, say, freshmen who declare engineering or freshmen who declare chemistry and, and graduate uh, in those fields, but the, there is a difference in that engineering has very little transfer in. Um, there is... Um, continuing uh, looking at and refining our knowledge about the effectiveness of active learning. I think many listeners will have heard of uh, the idea that students should be doing something in the classroom, but there's uh, research now in refining what kinds of activities produce more uh, greater and better learning. And I think that it's showing that more interaction between students is is probably the most effective, but having students thinking, doing something even individually can be helpful as well. Yeah, can you um, say can you say a little, can you expand on that? That's that's a yeah. topic near and dear to our listeners' hearts. Right. What, what, so, what, is that, uh, what is that, what does that, what does that uh, research tell us that we didn't know? Yeah, so um, just a background, there's been a lot of research on sort of active learning, having students yeah. do something more than in, in a classroom other than simply listening to uh, a lecture. Um, and uh, this recent re- research is uh, called the ICAP model, uh, interactive, constructive, active, and passive. And so uh, one, uh, one step beyond, uh, the first step of activity is having students individually think of something uh, or uh, elaborate to themselves or explain uh, ideas to themselves, and that's helpful, and it leads to more gains than simply listening. Then there's constructive, where the students uh, actually have to produce something that um, they're 
they're writing a short paper in class or, or explaining things to each other, uh, solving a problem in class. And then finally, there's the interactive level where they're actually talking to other students. And the, there's actually continuum, uh, this recent research showing that the interactive is probably the most powerful uh, because students are elaborating with each other and, and having to question each other and explain things to each other in, in their own terms. This does take time away from lectures, but uh, it's time well spent because what students do in the classroom, they'll will be more lasting learning. A lot of what they listen to, they may forget, uh, but uh, when students are more active, there's a greater uh, depth of learning and, and uh, uh, it's longer lasting. Um, so I would say that there's also, uh, so in terms of, and this leads me actually to uh, a revolution in methods. Um, you would think that engineers would like to do research that's very quantitative. We like to measure things, and um, that that is true. But uh, in the last five years, there's been a great um, shift in adding other methods of research, quantitative uh, besides the quantitative methods, qualitative methods where we uh, have students think aloud as they're solving problems, or we interview students, or we um, observe them in the classroom, or a- analyze their documents that they produce. So. Uh, uh, this qualitative methods have taken engineering education research by storm, and, and uh, there's a lot of very interesting work that's coming out of that that uh, gives us uh, more more detail and much richer understandings of what goes on uh, as students learn things. And besides uh, qualitative and quantitative, there's mixed methods where we deliberately have some quantitative measuring with uh, uh, um instruments or, or, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, sure. exam scores and so on, um, and artfully integrated with uh, some qualitative uh, data, such as focus groups or group interviews. Um, and uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of inspiration uh, using these methods that have been uh, uh, used in the social sciences, anthropology uh, is famous for its observations, but sociology, linguistics, doing um, uh, content analysis and very rigorous methods as well. Um, in terms of the quantitative parts, uh, people have been using, say, exam and homework scores for a long time, but there's sure. been a greater concern for validity and reliability, which means are we actually re- measuring what we think we're measuring and reliability is uh, is repeatable? Are, are we actually... Uh, uh, can can we rely on what we're, we're we're seeing? And there are more and more efforts to develop valid, reliable measurement instruments, not only for cognitive outcomes, that is conceptual understanding of concepts in, say, digital logic or thermodynamics, but also for these harder to assess skills such as global awareness, um, ethics, uh, attributes such as self-efficacy or confidence in uh, in professional situations. So there's uh, a lot of effort to develop these valid, reliable measurement instruments uh, drawing on methods from educational psychology. It's uh, gotten very sophisticated. Um, I'm not sure I uh, understand everything, but I have. Uh, that's what the peer review process is for, and uh, I understand enough to, to judge how well th- uh, that's going. So um, those are the kind of the current trends that I see in engineering education research. I'd like to say there would be more translation into practice, but that, again, seems to be a hard nut to crack. Well, and I think we want to, in, in the last segment, we want to talk about the, the mm-hmm. degree to which uh, this research right. does translate. And I, and I seen a, you showed me a draft of a piece that you're writing where you're calling for more of that. And I, I right. think we, we share a common cause, if not uh, uh, 
common instrument um, of, mm-hmm. of of accomplishing that. But uh, we both are, you know, both mm-hmm. interested in actually seeing seeing uh, uh, change be more effective. Mm-hmm. But so you know, so as you as as um, as, as you look over. Um, uh, those are some of the and and are there say separate? We're talking about engineering education research. Mm-hmm. You also uh, are a careful student of uh, scholarship of teaching and learning more mm-hmm. generally. Are there are there trends there that we should talk about say separately from the engineering education trends? Yes, absolutely. Um, for those who are not familiar with the term scholarship of teaching and learning, that uh, comes out of a report from uh, Ernest Boyer in 1990 who talked about thinking of scholarship. Uh, not just as doing primary research, discovery research uh, scholarship, but also thinking of our teaching practice as a scholarly activity uh, where it's grounded in the literature and uh, subject to peer review and, and where we might actually publish what we've learned about that and share that. So the idea of scholarship, uh, teaching as a scholarly activity originated in about 1990 in higher education. And we now, what we call scholarly teaching means that it is, uh, grounded in literature, it is uh, carefully assessed. Um, but what we now call the scholarship of teaching and learning is uh, where regular professors, instructors um, have questions about their own practice and they use the literature to inform their their studies. Uh, they gather data systematically from students and write those uh, up as papers that might be uh, published in conferences or in journals. So there are journals that publish these scholarship of teaching and learning papers. They differ from what Journal of Engineering Education uh, publishes in that in the Journal of Engineering Education, which is what I edit, it's much more theoretically grounded. We expect people to have educational theories. Um, we expect them to use rigorous methodologies that would be characteristic of education research and have attention to validity and reliability. By contrast, in scholarship of teaching and learning, you don't need a, uh, as much theory because we can't expect that regular mechanical engineering professors know much education theory. Uh, we don't expect... Uh, uh, the rigor of the methodology, but it should still be careful and systematic and not simply cherry-picking uh, the best student comments. So in terms of the scholarship of teaching and learning and engineering, uh, there, that sits um, between actual real classroom practices and more rigorous engineering education research. There's uh, been, uh, that's been ongoing for a long time. People are now studying um, their practices and uh, effectivenesses of um, current teaching practices, uh, such as flipped classrooms, where uh, students listen to lectures outside the classroom on video or podcast and then do their homework in the classroom with each other. And then um, more online teaching like MOOCs, um, uh, new kinds of laboratories, uh, laboratory kits that are... uh, or order of magnitudes or two orders of magnitude less expensive than standard lab benches. Uh, so as, as uh, engineering instructors are innovative in their teaching practices, there are some who uh, will conduct scholarship of teaching and learning uh, studies to assess the effectiveness of those practices and then to share those, uh, their findings with others through conferences and journals that publish that kind of work as well. I think that's an important part of the a uh, whole range of scholarly work in engineering education. Um, 
So, uh, whereas my journal publishes the most theoretically grounded, uh, um, we're very selective. We're uh, uh, and and that's at one end. It's like the the more foundational studies. There are people doing more applied studies uh, of all kinds of things, uh, driven by I guess new information and communication technologies. The desire to have say more authentic and real world problems in the classroom, and I think there's a, a you know, ferment and um, innovation that uh, gets um, validated and spread through through the scholarship of teaching and learning studies. Oh, that's great! And so, what uh, as you as you survey uh, as you survey that work, uh, you called out some of the trends in, in mm-hmm. say the Journal of Engineering Education. What what do you see in the in the the SOTL work? Uh, work? Uh, what do you see the there SOTL- that's different? I think what's different is that there's um, more attention to, uh, let's say, how people learn specific concepts within specific mm. disciplines. So my journal, uh, we can't uh, we cover all of engineering education. We we can't cover how you teach a particular concept, uh, let's say enthalpy in uh, thermodynamics. That's not appropriate. And but uh, there are more discipline-based education journals. So let's say in electrical engineering, there's IEEE Transactions and Education. Uh, published by the IEEE, which is a professional um, and uh, uh, society for electrical engineering. And so for teaching a particular topics in, let's say, circuits or digital systems, uh, how students learn those topics uh, would be published in those journals. And I think we'll, we, we, I've seen more of that, that kind of work, and, and uh, uh, I think we'll see more. And it's actually growing in terms of the size of the literature. I, I would hope that um, other disciplines like electrical and chemical engineering, which have their own discipline-based education journals that publish scholarship of teaching and learning, um, I can see, uh, um, and Civil actually has one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see mechanical engineering do one. Uh, so I think that those are the, the kinds of the trends here. It's more emphasis on looking closely at um, how students learn particular engineering concepts or particular engineering skills that would go into the more disciplinary kind of journals. Great. We've got a couple of uh, minutes before we um, um, mm-hmm. take take a break. You know, what what else would you like to tell our listeners about the state of research in in these fields? Well, I would say that uh, the standards keep increasing in terms of what we expect in terms of uh, rigor, quality of evidence. Um, training is uh, often necessary. That's why we now have uh, doctoral programs in engineering education mm-hmm. uh, starting at Purdue, Virginia Tech, Ohio State's going to start one. Arizona State recently started one. Uh, there are STEM education uh, programs as well, um, often based in colleges of education. So I think that the... Um, expectations for the uh, care and rigor, uh, even in scholarship of teaching and learning, are, are certainly rising. Uh, no longer can we say, I tried it and I liked it, or I yeah. tried it and the students liked it, but uh, I, I tried it and here's some data that show what students learned or which particular groups of students learned uh, in what particular kinds of ways. So uh, continuing refining of our knowledge, uh, which does require uh, greater attention to um, rigor. And, and so even in the scholarship of teaching and learning journals, I see people using more sophisticated statistical methods, for example, sure. uh, that may require uh, some training. Uh, or um, uh, And for engineering instructors, the statistics isn't 
too difficult to learn, but they do have to learn it. So yeah, so we'll uh, yeah we'll talk about the need for these F tests and T tests and so forth maybe yeah. in the next segment. But um, right. this is uh, Big Beacon Radio with our special guest uh, Michael Louie. And in the next segment, we want to talk about how do we uh, to what effect, to what extent has this research had an effect on practice? And and uh, regardless of the answer to that, how do how do we get uh, um, more more change and and more action mm-hmm. in in the field. We'll take that up in the in the last segment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Um, get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to transform higher education at 3joy.com. And in the last segment, we were talking about what's happening in engineering education and the scholarship of teaching and learning uh, generally. To, uh, this segment, we want to take a look at, at uh, the degree to which uh, research is having an effect uh, on practice. And, and this show grew out of uh, oh, the start of Olin College, uh, the uh, iFoundry experiment, uh, the book, A Whole New Engineer, and, and ongoing uh, practical efforts to, to transform um, higher education and you know by its nature this you know this enterprise when you create a new school there's it's really a fairly value laden enterprise and some of the I guess some of the polarities that are implicit in uh, uh, in in change were called out so in for in for example in whole new engineer we called out joy trust courage openness and connection as central as a scholar of uh, education, as as an engineering ethicist, what's your take or critique or uh, views on on uh, the startup of these new programs and 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 where educational culture seems to be going? Well, I would agree with you that uh, change is uh, value laden, and I think you've identified some important 
values that are uh, necessary in uh, change, for example, that uh, uh, leaders of the change need to have the trust of the people that they're working with, and uh, and openness can contributes to that to that kind of trust here. So, uh, yes, there are uh, uh, ethical, deep ethical issues uh, whenever you, you're talking about change as well. Um, uh, it's just within the context of uh, Large universities um, that, or even small institutions, that there's always uh, uh, these uh, there cultural uh, difficulties that people come up with uh, in terms of trying to trying to affect change. And um, so, actually, there is even research now on on um, uh, organizational uh, changes. Uh, so, uh, I think so some of the business people have been studying that, but people are now translating that into educational change in, in universities as well. Yeah, and and of course, uh, you know, guy. We've had John Cotter on the show. Has been a, mm-hmm. a scholar of uh, organizational change for for you know dozens of years now, and and um, and then we've had other people on the show like Adam Kahane, who's a, a practitioner of of larger scale social change, and and so I think of engineering. I think of ed, you know, education change as somewhere in between social change because it's so far reaching and. And corporate mm-hmm. change because it's in this uh, bureaucratic uh, structure that has mm-hmm. all kinds of impediments to changing. Mm-hmm. But, so, but let's talk about the effect of, you know, so we've been talking about, so, okay, so there's all this activity. We've got departments of engineering education. Mm-hmm. Uh, NSF is, is is throwing more money at stuff. Mm-hmm. American Society of Engineering Education has been around for a while and is, you know, doubling d- down on its efforts. What, um, to what extent, um, is the research that we're doing in education, generally engineering education in particular, having having an effect uh, and bringing about bringing about change? I think that it's a mixed uh, bag right now. Yep. I think that uh, a lot of the research on, let's say, active and cooperative learning is uh, gradually finding its way into engineering classrooms. More and more faculty members are learning about these methods and are implementing them and having fun and finding that their students are more energized. Uh, actually, yep. some of the times the research shows that the students may not learn more, but what they learn is more lasting and they develop better attitudes and so there's, and there's more uh, retention. And I'll take that over uh, better uh, conceptual understanding. Um, I think that... Uh, the there's some places where change is frustratingly slow. For example, we've known for many years how to uh, um, uh, what we need to do to improve, let's say, the participation of women um, among other underrepresented groups in engineering. Um, as you, it's the women have been only 17% of engineering undergraduates for a long time. It's yep. fluctuated a little bit between 15 and 20%, um, and this is across. Uh, all, uh, all American institutions yet, uh, and then uh, the percentage declines even in, among pra- practicing engineers. Yet in places like Indonesia, it's fifty percent of engineers are women. So uh, there must be something going on in the United States uh, that that causes these. Uh, uh, and and, um, and we studied this. We know well, some things that that can change, but are are hard to change. Let me cite one study that sure. that was a success. Um, uh, this study again grew out of research on uh, that showed that um, uh, standardized test scores, particularly the SAT math score, is not a particularly good um, predictor of the success uh, of women in en- 
women students in uh, undergraduate engineering programs, and this is uh, uh, the women in engineering programs tend to draw on a broader base of skills than simply uh, uh, being able to do mathematical problems, which is still important, but but it's not the only skill that they have. And uh, one institution found that by um, eliminating a cutoff for the SAT math score, they were able to admit more women into their programs, and the women did just fine because it was research-based. We knew that the women would uh, be successful, and so now the uh, percentage of women at that engineering school is is you know, closer to 30% than the, uh, it's almost double the national average. Uh, so that's one success story. And it would be nice if other places would uh, adopt these, um, uh, in this case, administration rather than classroom uh, changes that are, that are based on the research. Um, the National Science Foundation has, uh, is in the second round of awarding these fairly large grants to uh, departments. Uh, it's called Revolutionizing Engineering Departments because they believe that real departments are the locus of change yep. and uh, organizing faculty members that pi- partner. Um, uh, it's a partnership with the department chairs and an engineering education expert and faculty within the departments to uh, look at ways and levers that can uh, change the cultures within departments to um, to implement some of these practices that we know from the research are, are effective. So I, I would say that there is a broad base of knowledge uh, uh, that is um, very slowly uh, being implemented in, in some places. So I think it's spotty. Um, in in um, but we'll continue that effort. Yeah, and uh, I guess on the one hand, I'm uh, I'm I'm sort of a I'm happy to see you know. So we've seen the NSF uh, fund actually over and over again. It's it's like Groundhog Day, uh, mm-hmm. large scale efforts to bring mm-hmm. about change. Uh, the the what the last big tranche that I remember was it were the uh, uh, curriculum co- coalitions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh, and everyone gets excited for a while and and does some stuff and then the money goes away. I I, I guess I'm wondering that makes me think of the research and uh, self determination theory and Ed DC's work and so forth. That you mm-hmm. know part of what when when we give rewards. Uh, financial rewards for things about all we, especially in complex cognitive tasks, that all we do is t- train people uh, to not do the thing unless they're rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. What's your, yeah, as, as a scholar of of, uh, of engineering education research, what uh, that was an assert that was an assessment, but I'm curious what your take is on what I just said. Well, I think that that there's a, some truth in what you said there that the money can be a, a good stimulus to help people think about something, but uh, you need to figure out how to sustain the effort after the um, initial stimulus is withdrawn. And that goes really deeply to the values of the institution and its culture. I almost think that um, some of these newer engineering programs are more innovative because because they can start from clean slates and and establish their uh, institutional cultures from the Uh, get-go. You mentioned Olin College that uh, started... Uh, from a clean state slate, but also uh, there are programs now at baccalaureate and master's institutions like James Madison University, which has design across the curriculum, yeah. and um, and then at Rowan University, they have a uh, engineering students have a real world multidisciplinary problem uh, solving activity in every semester. Um, uh, it's called the clinic, I think, at Rowan University. But um, so uh, it's almost like you have to have a clean slate, and then I uh, from the larger 
institutions, the big public universities where the vast majority of engineering students are, are educated, I think it will continue to be spotty um, to, uh, as people see some of these models at the other institutions. Uh, there is a not invented here syndrome as well, but um, I, I think that uh, you're right. Uh, we need to, um, in order to in- implement institutional reform, there needs to be something really fundamental about, uh, and I think in this case, it's going to be department level. Well, and I, uh, and I think reform. there's a, yeah, I think, the, and I, I think there's a sense in which, uh, you know, what you just said, this not invented here piece is a big piece. And part of what we've mm-hmm. been trying to overcome in Big Beacon is to, We've we've got a working group of people doing innovative things, and one of the challenges has been getting people to really talk to each other and share and and learn from each other. I think it's starting to happen, but there's a, I think the there's this there's a culture. Well, there's a in being a professor, there's a culture of individual initiative, mm-hmm. and and institutionally there's a culture of well, our you know, uh, I'll, Illinois will have an advantage over Purdue if they teach statics marginally better than say mm-hmm. uh, Purdue does, or vice versa. And it, and it's we need to overcome that and and mm-hmm. work together in a different way. So yeah, mm-hmm. I want to talk. You you showed me a piece that you're um, uh, in in the process of working on when you talked about mm-hmm. uh, well, you talked about your parents' disappointment uh, and, and you're not being a medical doctor, but you, and then you also talked about borrowing from medical research in tra- in translation research and that engineering mm-hmm. education could learn a learn a lesson from that. What what's that all about? Yes. So uh, this is, uh, maybe it's a blinding flash of the obvious that just because we publish these wonderful research papers that uh, their ideas are not going to be picked up by the practitioners. And, and the medicine's known this for a while. That uh, So there are the uh, clinicians and then there are the researchers. Uh, but there you have people who are in the middle, the sort of physician scientists yep. uh, who do what we in medicine is now called translational research. The goal of translational research in medicine is to take those uh, laboratory experiments that show some molecule might have a particularly good effect and possibly develop new drugs. But um, so uh, there's a step between, a big step that goes between the original studies in laboratories and uh, before it becomes widespread clinical practice. So it's almost like you need a special effort or people who are trained to do that kind of research is different from the fundamental research. Um, uh, and it may involve large-scale clinical trials. It may involve small case studies. Uh, uh, but there, So there's a variety there. But the whole goal is to take things that are uh, discovered through primary research and converting them into uh, and seeing whether they scale up and seeing whether they actually will be effective, uh, efficacious in a larger populations with real pa- patients. So um, I've been thinking that, well, maybe we need people who are trained to do that kind of research. It's different mm-hmm. from the fundamental research and different from um, uh, just being good practitioners. Uh, and I was wondering what that might look like in engineering education. I think the people doing scholarship of teaching and learning are a piece of that. Uh, that's more like the uh, almost yes. like a clinician who has a case study and and writes that up. Uh, in, yeah, but I'm hearing I'm hearing it as uh, even more than that. As you know, it's uh, almost like in in industry that, that there's discovery, uh, scientific discovery, and then there's mm-hmm. there's innovation that actually gets it into the marketplace. Is the way I'm hearing right. hearing that. Right. There's, you know, there's Michael, we innovation. It's a different set of skills there. Yep. Right. 
and and I wish we had more time. Uh, it's been terrific mm-hmm. having you on the show. I, I maybe we can get you back on, and you can tell us about new newer trends uh, down the road six months or so. We'd love to have you oh, back. Okay. So okay. Thanks. Well, that would be lovely. I can't believe that the hour's gone by so quickly. But thank you yeah. very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Uh, special guest to our. Um, uh, to, to our guest, Michael Louie at uh, Purdue University, help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Uh, join us next week when we have Monica uh, Cox on from Ohio State University to talk about their new Department of, high, of uh, Engineering Education there. Uh, and, and join us as we continue our quest to transform higher education. for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.